Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. In this episode, I interview my friend Lexi Thodos. Lexi and I discuss finding your passion, entrepreneurship, detoxification, and gut health. Next, we get super hyped about one of our mutual favorite topics, the pineal gland. We then dive into the metaverse theory, the universality of energy, and Lexi's conception of heaven and hell. Finally, we end with a discussion on astrology and meditation. Please enjoy. Lexi, how are you doing today? I am good, thanks. How are you doing today, Jordan? I'm doing great. And I'm really excited to interview you. As we've talked about, you were the first person to really get me into spirituality. And, you know, you taught me about crystals probably like a year ago. And I never would have guessed that 12 months later, I'd be two miles down the rabbit hole and starting a spirituality podcast. But really excited to interview you since you kicked off this whole process for me. Oh, I was honestly, when you told me that, it just warmed my heart. For me, I. I'm usually the one blabbering on about all of these mind-bending, sometimes illogical, but interesting ideas. And it's really cool that that with you seems like they stuck and it really opened you up to a whole new realm of thinking and existing. I'm very honored that I was able to catalyze that and I'm excited to dive into some good convos today. So with that, Lexi, why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? I born and raised here in Chicago. I feel obligated to start with my career, but with that being said, I came from the background of finance, institutional finance with fundraising, asset management. And in college, I double majored. Well, I wanted to single major in entrepreneurship because my dream was to start my own business which I am currently doing now. So fast forward, but I also majored in finance because I knew that I had to pay the bills somehow. So I dove into that. And after a few years in that career, I decided it wasn't really, wasn't really lighting me up the way that that I wanted to be. And so I made a, uh, a good hefty career pivot and dove into the field I have been passionate about for over a decade now, which on a relative basis is still quite a bit of time. And now I am in the alternative health and wellness realm. So starting a business here with a business partner that has been in the space for some time now. And yeah, we are still in the really early stages of it, but really excited for what's to come. And really just about me, I, my goal in life and where I feel why I feel I was placed here on this earth in this lifetime was truly to help people. And to me, you know, I've always had this passion for holistic medicine and healing and health. And it's always been interesting to me. And I've just, I've been able to piece things together and really start correlating. Well, this is what ignites my fire. I mean, I truly believe that when you have a passion for something in life, no matter how seemingly mundane or how crazy. I, our passion, it's like a sixth sense in a way. It's 
what we were meant to do, what we can give to the world. And I think for me, I really want to be able to share my knowledge and my evolving and growing knowledge, but really be able to to help people, help people feel better and help people experience life, you know, in the way that they should. Yeah, I guess that's a little bit about me. Oh, and I love music. God, I can't forget about these important, important aspects of my life. Huge fan of music. Jordan, you and I at that Lane 8 show, when we all went the other weekend at Red Rock, that was hands down the best show I've ever been at in my life, which says a lot. And I love learning new things about all the curious, interesting realms out there. So with that now, I will conclude my introduction. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic, Lexi. And thanks for that intro. To start with, would love to dive a little bit more into your decision to really follow your passion and leave a steady, I would imagine, well-paying job in traditional finance and make the leap into entrepreneurship in a totally different field, but one in which you are much more passionate about. And can you just walk us through what was that process like in terms of building up the courage to make the leap? What were the pros and cons you evaluated as you were making that decision? That's a good question, especially uh, for those out there that might be listening. And, you know, I have so many friends that they don't really think twice about, well, is there something else that I would rather be doing? I think a lot of people fall into certain career paths for many reasons. And one of which, probably the driver, is for money, for the amount of money you'll make. In, In a sense, money equals freedom. So in life, it's okay to be driven towards a goal of money. I think that that's a view that's become very tarnished over time because there's all of this ego around it and so on and so forth. But you know, that's okay. For some people, I think that facing the money and no matter what the means are, I mean, to a degree with limits, but I think that's okay. But for me, I was really, I mean, for me, obviously I'm going to make a lot of money in life. It's a requirement. It's a prerequisite. But for me, the way I was making money, it just wasn't filling me up. It was honestly wearing me down. I um, worked really hard. I put in very, very long hours at the office. I got my Series 7, my Series 66. I was operating in the capacity of financial representative and advisor. And there's all of these you're in the space. There's all these very, very stringent rules and this, that, and the other. And when you add on managers and a company that has certain cultures that just don't, they feel more stifling than they feel enlivening. And so for me, I just got to the point where I remember thinking to myself, I don't want someone to tell me what to do. This is so messed up. Like I, I was born and raised by two entrepreneurs. Both of my parents started their own businesses. So like, I kind of saw that side of things and they never, they never answered to someone. And to me, I just felt like that was just like a dream fantasy world idea. And then I realized, why don't you just do it, Lexi? So I did it. And at first it was definitely like you said, and like you could probably very much so relate to It is definitely a very scary thing. I think there's an evolution in your identity, or at least mine, when you're transitioning between two careers that 
fall on opposite sides of the spectrum. There's an identity, I don't know if I'd say crisis, but shift. And for me, that was, I poured so much hard work, so much energy, so much time. I gave it my all. Whatever I do, I give it 100%. And so I was like, did I just, am I making a mistake? But then, you know, there was something deep in, in my gut that just, that just knew I made the right decision. And so with that, I just tried not looking back. I tried not to hold fear and harbor fear in any way. I think fear is, it's an emotion that is only useful if you learn something from it and then let go of it immediately. But in the grand scheme of things, fear just, it cancels out love. And that's the most productive, efficient, and uniting energy that you can embody. So why would you want to cancel that out? And so I kind of carried forward with that mentality. And I had to definitely be mindful with my finances, but thanks to crypto and some good trades, (laughs) that's been helping me out. But yeah, I think that at the end of the day, as cliche as it is, following your dreams, following your soul and what makes you feel alive, that is always going to prevail success in that direction. And as you talk about passion and following your soul and what moves you, how have you been able to figure out what that is, what, what's important to you? Has that gotten easier over time? Have you learned any skills for figuring out what exactly it is that your soul is looking for? For a while, I very specifically and precisely remember just reflecting on the fact that for years, what is my passion? Why don't I have a passion? I have interests. Yeah. But do I like one of these interests specifically the most or in other terms, is there something that's specifically drawing me? You know, I, I felt like I couldn't answer that question very directly, especially in college, especially while I was supposed to be creating the groundwork for my life. And I'm like, what do I even want to do with myself? And that comes back to like to believe that everyone, but at least I can see for myself, wants to pursue a life and a career that you're passionate about. I mean, are you kidding? I think that with time, everyone's on their own timelines. When it comes to finding your passion, that's an element of self-realization. And you can't find your passion unless you know yourself well enough, unless you find yourself. There's a lot of things that are cliches that if you think about long enough and in the right light, you realize the significance and the weight that sometimes these phrases carry. And so I think, yeah, I think that I got to know myself. I think that I, I started to learn. I got into the workforce. I'm at a desk. I'm working with all these people on pretty much a sales floor at Nuveen and I had people of all ages and all walks of life coming to me at one point because I, I just so willingly, and I, I, like I said, I love helping people. Oh, they, one of my friends was having heartburn or something. And I pulled out my file bin, which had no files and just pretty much a whole thing of essential oils, herbal teas, salve, CBD. Like it was, it was hilarious. I had crisp crystals on my desk. I had like this little Buddha guy on my desk. I had this 
banner of all of the chakras system on my desk and for no other reason than because I, I thought that stuff was cool but yeah i had my manager calling me a hippie i had people <laughs> coming to me literally that was the funniest part but i had people and i wasn't like one of these people that are like oh pushing it out there like this my identity and my ego being like oh I've, see me this way it it was just because it was something, these are just things that I wanted to surround myself with. And I didn't really think much about. And that kind of leads me to my point, because with time, I realized that healing is my journey. It's my passion. I've experienced some health challenges in my life. And that's really drawn me with a much more punctual focus towards this space. But I want to be able to help people on that healing journey, just like I'm still continuously helping myself. And when I see that I can help somebody, I can help alleviate their heartburn or help them get good night's sleep by putting together a great herbal blend for them to help with sleep. Those are huge things to me. I mean, helping improve someone's quality of life, someone's experience and relationship with their day-to-day reality are vessels that we live in and the minds that occupy them and the spirits, it's so important that we continue to just nurture them and bring attention to that. And so you mentioned that the new business you started is in the health and wellness space. would love if you could expand a bit on what exactly you'll, you're doing. Like I said, we are still a very early stage business, but our goal is what we really are trying to do here is we're focusing in on the space of detoxification and on the importance that our state of health and our body homeostasis, the importance of clearing it of toxicity. And we're exposed to all forms of toxicity in this day and age. A lot of people that have health problems and diseases and chronic conditions, if you just thought to remove our bodies, are they're literally the most sound mechanism that was structurally designed and built to heal itself. We're programmed to heal ourselves. And so when we can't do that, when our bodies can't do that, then sometimes you have to look in the direction of what's preventing that. And that's what we're doing here at its core. We are looking to work with people and provide consultative, completely personalized detoxification programs and help people on that journey, depending on specifically their current state of health. Detox isn't just a one size fits all. It depends on what you're dealing with. It could be anything. You could need to detox parasites. I mean, 80, more than 80% of us have parasites and it's not Mm. even talked about. And parasites are one of the most leading causes of chronic health conditions. But even aside from that, parasites, mold. Have you lived in a wet building? Have you lived in Indiana? I mean, I went to school in Indiana and I can tell you for a fact, if you've lived in a moldy building or a building where there's good chance of there being mold, then you probably have mold in your system. And mycotoxins are extremely toxic. And over time, stuff like, like I said, parasites, mold, Lyme disease, heavy metals, other types of pathogens, we environmental pollutants in our water, in our the air that we breathe. There was this crazy stat that I read the other day that 
that said that the average person in this day and age, and this is a very legitimate statistic from Cellcore Biosciences, the average person consumes a credit card worth of plastic in a usually a week time span. That's how much yeah. plastics are in our food and in our water. And now they're in our bodies and our bodies don't know what they are. They're like, mm. how do I get rid of this? I mean, heavy metals, they leave our bloodstream almost instantaneously and they bleach into our muscle tissues and into our fat. That's where they sit. And so they kind of go behind the scenes. Our bodies don't know how to recognize them. Same with, I could go on a long rant with parasites. These are things that no one really talks about. And I think that our goal as a business is to bring a lot of awareness and education to these areas of, we're going to be exposed to toxins. It's not a reality where our bodies can naturally just detox them all out. We all have glyphosate in our bodies. It's extremely sad and very, very devastating. There's a crazy statistical number associated with the babies born that have tested today that are tested with glyphosate in their bodies. And so, I mean, aside from that, so that's the chemical that's used in Roundup. It's basically a pesticide and they spray it. It gets in the air. It leaches into the, the ground, into the dirt. We are still a very early stage business and we have humongous aspirations for what we want to do. What I think what our ultimate goal is, which is actually very, very cool, and I'm excited to actually share it right now on this podcast because it's the first time I'm really broadcasting it out. But our goal is to ultimately, aside from working with people and helping put together personalized, customized detox programs and being able to provide ongoing support and guidance. It's to work with couples, young couples looking to have a baby and being able to detox them preconception. And the reason being is what better way to address the root cause than actually go to the root cause and nip it in the bud, create a clean slate, a genetic reset where you're able to put honestly a clean slate is what the way I like to say it toxic mm -hmm. parents make toxic babies and we have so many children being born in this day and age that are another crazy statistic I recently read was that by the year of like 2040 one out of every two will be on the autism spectrum wow Think about that. That's insane. That truly is insane. Why is this happening? Why are more and more children being born with crazy allergies and asthma and so many learning disabilities and, and actual really chronic health conditions that, I mean, it's heartbreaking. They're children. Children should be the, in their healthiest prime state. And that just, it goes back to the foundations that built them. And I think when you look back at to India, India is pretty much our inspiration for this. My business partner actually lived out there for a short amount of time and studied and practiced Ayurveda and yoga out there. And so she is Ayurvedic specialist, knows, has learned so much, but and that Ayurveda is, is basically the healing medicine 
the approach to medicine in India. It's their, what we would consider for us Western medicine, India's Ayurveda. In, in China, you have dates back traditional Chinese medicine. But besides the point, in India, it's a custom or a tradition to have both parents before having a child detox their bodies. And there's Ayurvedic, got huge slew of Ayurvedic herbs, practices. I mean, have you ever heard of oil pulling? Uh-uh. And oil pulling where you put oil in your mouth and you push it around for a bit and, and then you spit it out. It's really detoxifying. It also helps whiten your teeth and helps remove plaque mm. in your mouth and kills bacteria. In Ayurveda, I mean, you also have, think about all of the herbs and spices they use out there. Basically the core, I think of how a lot of people might know or may have learned about Ayurveda is learning about the three doshas, which yeah, I highly suggest that anyone listening right now, it'd be really cool for everybody to know their dosha. You can Google it. There's three of them. It's based on your body type, how your body uses energy, how it is best oriented to perform. And it, it kind of goes into what, how you should be living your life based on your dosha. So some people exercise looks like the best way about their body can use exercise to give it energy to maximize its health is by doing like sprints and running high intensity cardio or weight training. And then that's relative to other doshas that they might be much more inclined to do something more low intensity like yoga because pittas, they have a lot of fire, a lot of energy. And that also goes towards what you're supposed to eat. There's cooling foods and there's warming foods. But besides the point in India, before having a child, they detox and they make sure that the parents that are going into this before, like the actual egg, the actual sperm, the DNA and the health of those two entities are at their peak. They are detox. There is no toxic burden holding it back. You're honestly going to create a super healthy baby. You have these geniuses that come out of India and you, you see this practice and this tradition, this custom that is customary in India. And you you look at that and you start piecing together dots and you realize maybe there is some legitimacy here. And I think that's something that's triangulating everything that's going on today and what the market doesn't have. It detox right now isn't looked at some as something that should be a tailored hands-on experience. And the market's moving in that direction because people really are running out of options when it comes to figuring out ways to treat their chronic health conditions and their illnesses and their inflammation and stress. I'm really excited about where it's going to take us. That's amazing. And I think you're in such an incredible spot right now in terms of market need and clearly demand for people who want to get healthy. And, you know, in the U S we've been really, blessed over the last several years as mental health has entered the lexicon and that's treated not as a stigma as much anymore. And people are able to go get help for that. And not even necessarily want to call it help, but just someone to talk to. I think everyone has what would historically been called mental health, quote unquote issues. But now it's just, that's just part of being a human is it's helpful to talk to someone. But from there to your point and your company's thesis that we're still not 
nearly that far as it relates to detox, as it relates to your gut biome. And you may know the exact numbers, but isn't there something like call it, you have billions of cells in your brain, but trillions in your gut or, or whatever. It's, it's some magnitude of order higher in your gut relative to your brain. And so I think it really emphasizes, Hey, this is an incredibly important part of the human body. And to your point about all the toxins in modern society and plastics that they're not going to dissolve in the ocean for hundreds of years. Of course, our body's not going to be able to break them down. So really uh, exciting to hear about what what you're doing. Yeah. And about 90% of our neurotransmitters are made and synthesized in the gut. So think serotonin, dopamine, there's the gut brain axis, there's the gut immune axis. It's a crazy thing to think about when you consider how the foods that you eat, they completely change your view of life because they change your perception. They change your mind, your state of well-being, your state of immune health, especially, and this is something that is more and more people I'm so happy are learning about, but candida, I mean, our, our diet in this day and age with processed sugars, refined everything, refined our diet in the scanning age is very destructive to the gut lining. And what happens is when there's little, you have junctions that hold your, your gut lining in place that harbor all that good bacteria, all that microbiome. If you start breaking that by eating foods, foods that are very, very poor nutrition, drinking a ton of alcohol, eating high fat, high starchy, gluten is like humongous. It breaks those tight junctions in your gut and it causes inflammation. And what those also do, I mean, think about sugar. Think about, think about beer. Yeast is what's used in beer. Yeast feeds off of sugar. And most of all of this bad stuff I'm saying turns into sugar in your body. Bread, sugars, any form of refined processed food, honestly, probably turns into sugar. And what happens is you have a good normal balance of, of yeast in your stomach, but and candida, which is the name of it. But when you break up those tight junctions in, in your stomach lining, in your whole gut, then you can get candida overgrowth. And candida overgrowth is a very common thing in this day and age because of, like I said, our lifestyles, our diets. But the problem is that it's hard to get rid of it. Some symptoms for those of you that might not know really what candida might look like in the body. Since the gut and the brain have such a tight relationship, it can look like mental fog. It can look like depression, anxiety, really anything, a lack of focus, a very hard crash in the afternoon where your brain literally can't work on you. That's just the mental side of, of, of the symptoms. But you can also have a whole slew of symptoms in the body of inflammation. Say you have arthritis, you can have really bad swelling of arthritis, of joints, of your whole body. So really, you can get bad headaches. You can get bad bloating. If from a digestive-related lens, have a really hard time with digestion, get bad heartburn or acid reflux. You can have a really hard time sleeping. And the reason that this is such a widespread spectrum, if you have picked up on that, is because the gut is such a foundational mechanism to the whole body. So if there's something that's off in the gut, 
it's going to cause a cascading effect throughout the whole body and it'll show in different forms. So I think that it's, it's all really something to look at with candida since I brought it up. And sometimes it's stressful when people tell you things and then they don't tell you how to fix them. A good candida diet in like 10 words or less, eat a diet that's low sugar. Try to manage your alcohol consumption. Definitely try to take out gluten. My suggestion, honestly, for everyone, so I'm gluten-free and I'm dairy-free. Dairy-free because my body is allergic, but gluten-free, that's just because a long time ago, my mom decided to be gluten-free in high school when I was still living at home. So she made everything, you know, gluten-free pasta, gluten-free. If you find the right brands, it's really not that hard. Gluten-free is pretty chill. But I started eating gluten-free and I thought, what the hell? I'm just going to give it a shot. I feel better. And so I kept eating gluten-free. And then through college, somehow, every now and then, maybe some pizza slipped in. But like, <laughs> I was gluten-free throughout some all the of the pizza college. express. Yeah. But I mean, pizza isn't even as, as exciting for me because I have to take the cheese off because I'm allergic <laughs> to dairy. So, but just try to cut gluten out of your diet. If you're going to do it, you got to do it for at least two weeks. If you talk to someone like my business partner, Tracy, she's going to say at least four to six months because gluten stays in your body that long mm. because gluten comes from the root word glue, which gluten literally means glue in German. Reason being is it acts like glue in your stomach. So gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye, just wheat, barley, and rye. But when we digest it, it's not a protein our bodies can easily break down. Mm -hmm. And so like four out of five people are intolerant to gluten. Gluten, you know, it gets, doesn't get digested once we eat it. And our body basically sounds the alarm and is like, what did you just eat? Oh no, this is a foreign invader. And what does the body do when it has something that's a threat? It releases the inflammation signals. And that's inflammation is just smoke to the fire. So if there's one thing you can take away from this long rant I've just gone on, just know that in inflammation is smoke to the fire. So treat inflammation by sure, take your turmeric, take your curcumin, make sure you're drinking a lot of water, make sure you're sweating a lot. But you got to dig a, another layer deeper and kind of look at the root cause there. Mm -hmm. With gluten, I think that before you do anything and before you make any drastic changes in any direction for your health and spend all this money, there's a, a handful of things that are really easy and cost no money to, I, I'm saying relative to actually going and seeking help from someone, but obviously it's different for every person and every situation. But where I'm going with this is if you cut gluten out of your diet and give it some time, there are some good high quality gluten alternatives. Just make sure there isn't crazy amounts of sugar and other additives. Make sure they're organic and good. You're going to start feeling a whole hell of a ton better. Heat, I live with a guy. He eats everything that I cook and everything I cook is gluten-free. I've gotten him onto the gluten-free lifestyle and, and he's like, Honestly, he's really grateful for it. And I love that because obviously cooking and all that isn't easy, but I enjoy it. And I'm happy that I got to wake him up to this whole new world. For candida, just focus on low sugar, not much alcohol. Just try to lay off the gluten and eat a ton of whole fruits and vegetables. Keep the fruits not super high sugar fruits, more low glycemic fruits. But yeah, lots of leafy greens. Basically like a keto diet is 
really effective against Candy. Uh-huh. And so we've talked quite a bit about the importance of focusing on gut health and detox. And so I'd love to shift to another part of the body that in Western medicine has been, I'll say, uh, misunderstood, or at least understanding has been very limited. And, and it seems like there's some really exciting new research coming out in recent years. And that is, of course, the pineal gland. And so would love, Lexi, if you would give your understanding of what the pineal gland is and why that has been an important part of the body for you recently. Yeah, I mean, oh, God, you're going to get me down on the pineal gland. It is the coolest, craziest. It's, it, oh my gosh. Okay, well, let's start out with a really cool, interesting thing I learned, which was that back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the philosopher Descartes, he had claimed that this the pineal gland was the seat of the soul. And this is way before they had any technology to really dive in and see what was going on, what it was, what it's doing. But, you know, like you said, fast forward to today, and we've learned so much more about it. And again, the pineal gland is a tiny little gland sitting at the back in your brain sitting at the back of your head, that's in the center back of your head, but it's probably the size of a uh, big piece of rice, very, very small. But the pineal gland is neuroendocrine gland that makes serotonin and melatonin, which that alone is crazy because that is basically the process of taking sensory input from our eyes via visible light and being able to take that frequency and register it via our pineal gland. And from there, either start producing and secreting serotonin if it's the morning and we see sunlight or melatonin at night. And that encapsulates pretty much the essence of our circadian rhythm. So the pineal gland not only orchestrates the the consistency and the pattern and rhythm of our circadian rhythm, but what's crazy is it's kind of like what I just said. It receives the signal from the sunlight. The pineal gland is it's capable of receiving and converting signals in the brain. And really the large way that it does this is because it's actually, there are crystals in our bodies, in our pineal gland. It's calcite crystals. So I believe that has carbons, calcium, oxygen, but crystals with crystalline structures that are able to actually receive and transmit a form of a frequency. And frequency, all frequency is information. Dr. Joe Dispenza on his book, Becoming Supernatural, which is an, a phenomenal book, book. I highly recommend that anyone get it. He just continuously reinforces the concept that frequ- all energy is frequency and all frequency is information. And by information, that means depending on what that frequency is, it's telling you something. And it might not be visible, it could be non visible. There are 
Now, we only can see or interact with the frequent, like a very, very minute, minuscule section of the whole spectrum of energy that exists. We only see a sliver of it. The pineal gland has the ability to engage with these frequencies that are on a higher dimension, a higher level of existence. And you hear all this buzz about activating the, the pineal gland and decalcifying the pineal gland. Because when, when people say decalcify the pineal gland, any gland, when your body, when you're not using something, it begins to calcify. So over time, we have our use of the pineal gland has really dwindled. And that kind of draws to the concept, at least in my eyes, that human consciousness and the evolution of our consciousness as a civilization, I back to say that I, I don't believe that it's, it's been linear. I think that it's been cyclical in nature. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up. But I think that there was a point in time where humans used their pineal gland as a tool for accessing higher dimensions and being able to really connect and unify with, with a quantum field. The quantum field, the whole, the whole point of being present and being able and, and meditation and being able to connect with the quantum field is something that the spirit is designed to, to try to and, or want to achieve in a lifetime. And a lot of people don't even get to the point of really acknowledging that or learning that because our lives in this day and age a lot has changed and there are a lot of things that distract us and a lot of things that take away take our attention away from all of that exists out there that's just so beautiful and and so magical and and truly supernatural but the pineal gland is truly what I believe is a huge aspect of what connects our physical anatomy to the metaphysical state. We're not human beings living a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings living a human experience. When it comes to, I have to keep bringing myself back to the pineal gland. What's really cool is that I just think it's insane that there's crystals in the pineal gland and the same way. So it's called the piezoelectric effect, which is basically a way for saying that when you put some form of mechanical pressure on something, it will react and form a electrical charge. Which by the way, Lexi, I believe that's exactly how watches work is with piezoelectric crystals. And that is, that's so crazy to say that because it, you're right. And you want to know why? Because it has quartz crystals. A lot of watches, if not most, have quartz in them. And quartz is it's an amazing, amazing crystal. It has it's amazing. I'm, I'm holding one right now. Oh my God, wait, I have one right over here. Oh, I'm holding one now too. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Quartz is known as the master healer, depending on the shade. Okay, so let's go back to the fact that we're talking about crystals, electric charges. Crystals are able to generate an electric charge. They carry a frequency, in other words, 
because of this structure that they have. They have a crystallite structure in like a lattice-like structure that is geometric but unique. And that's what that's why each crystal carries different unique properties that give off different and unique frequencies, which is why different crystals, you should sometimes you're drawn to certain crystals, but up the color of a crystal, whether it's super opaque or super translucent, quartz is very translucent. And so there is a lot of upper the crown chakra and the third eye chakra and the, sh the throat chakra commonly have a lot of more translucent crystals associated with them. But to come back to the, the pineal gland, basically the reason crystals have healing energy is because of this same reaction that goes on in our bodies. And it's an insane concept when you truly think about it, because that shows that we have the ability to take in frequencies, take in energetic signals that we can't see. All the five senses can't pick up on it, but we have a different sense per se that can. And over time, when we're not using the pineal gland, we're not activating. It's like a muscle. Every, everything is a muscle. And yeah. when you're not using something, oh, especially over generations, and you're instilling generational complete changes to how the minds work and think and how lives are lived over time and you don't use it, it's going to calcify. It's going to, I mean, I don't know if atrophy would be applicable here, but the same yeah. concept. What's cool is in that book by Dr. Joe Dispenza, he talks about this breathing technique that is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And and I actually tried it and it felt it felt very regenerative and it I almost physically felt the energy moving with my breath. And so what the technique is in short is you inhale through your nose and you hold your breath. And as you're inhaling, you contract or squeeze your core muscles in your basically your internal muscles you just squeeze them really tight as you're holding your breath and while you're doing this envision a beam of light traveling up your spine from when you started to take the inhale and then traveling up your spine through well the basically this light and it's because it's good to visualize things it helps a lot especially with meditation Lexi, on that changes. point i'll uh, i'll post some of the pictures that you're referencing from his book on our instagram page so people can see it yes that would be huge but basically when you do this if you envision a beam of light going up your spine and straight into your head what you're doing is you're actually moving cerebral spinal fluid up the spine and shooting it up into the pineal gland, which as you take a deep breath and each breath in, and by contracting your muscles, think about it as like you're squeezing toothpaste out of a tube of toothpaste and you have to start at the bottom and you squeeze, you squeeze while it's empty and you're pushing the rest of it upwards. Same concept is going for this. You're doing it with your breath. And so when you do this and you continue to do this over multiple different times, multiple cycles, you're creating that piezoelectric charge that's coming in.
awaking and helping to reactivate your pineal gland. It's a crazy cool concept. And by no yeah. means am I a full-blown pineal expert out there, but <laughs> definitely read this book that we've been mentioning. It's, it's really great. I mean, the whole book, he is one of the smartest minds out there that's able to bridge yeah. the gap between the physical and the metaphysical, but using a scientific denotation and in scientific terms, the pineal gland is known as the third eye. And or the eye of Horus, the sixth chakra, all, all the same thing. Exactly. There's also, so if you were to draw the Fibonacci sequence on the human head, a fractal of the human head from the side, the same yep. as if you're looking at the human brain, the smallest part of the fractal as it starts, it's going inwards, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, ends at the, the pineal gland which is an insane thing considering that sacred geometry and yeah. numerology and the dimensions and like the measurements of the pyramid are like the speed of light. That wouldn't surprise me. The Egyptians yeah. were genius. They were brilliant. They yeah. literally had probably extremely healthy active pineal glands. It's insane. Ooh. Oh, and the biggest thing. So the pineal gland, like I said, it produces melatonin, which is obviously super important. There was a crazy, anyway, I have to say this because it's insane. Melatonin, in this book, I just learned that in 2011, somewhere in the UK, there was a crop circle formation, like a huge design hmm. that, was, that, that was found in the shape of the molecular shape of melatonin, the molecule. Wow. So if you were to write out the, the chemical shape of melatonin, it was a, there was a crop circle that was the same shape. And he has a picture of it too. So definitely it'd be cool to post that. And melatonin is an antioxidant. So melatonin is the precursor to multiple different additional chemicals that our pineal gland produces in the body. One of which, and these chemicals, a lot of them, the process starts once you start activating the pineal gland. And one of these, chemicals that our brain produces is DMT, which melatonin is a precursor for. And it's no surprise that melatonin is associated with falling asleep. And when are you basically tripping on a regular basis? When you're dreaming at night, mm -hmm. you're in a different reality, in a different place, having a different experience that elicits different emotions. I think that there's elements, sure, of symbolism in dreaming, but I think dreaming is way more in-depth and complex mm -hmm. than just being symbolic of our day-to-day -day lives. I, I personally think dreaming represents could anything from past lives to different alternative realities, you know? I, it's, our spirit is literally somewhere else. That is all going on because of this insane hormone, basically, melatonin. Yeah. And it's so crazy that all of this is going on in this tiny little pea-sized glands <laughs> in our body. But I truly do think that by activating the pineal gland, you are not only raising your vibration, but you're connecting with the quantum realm. And by quantum realm, I just mean the realm where anything is possible, mm -hmm. truly anything mm -hmm. is possible.
the realm that we are all connected to, no matter we like it or not, or we choose not to tune in. It's the realm where anything is possible. It's the realm where we can be self healers and where we can heal our minds and our bodies and we can help heal the world. It's truly, it's supernatural, definitely. It's real. We just can't see it. So definitely the pineal gland is like our little antenna that picks up frequencies and signals from that realm and helps us make sense of them, connect further. Yeah. God, that's so awesome. And I could nerd out with you about the pineal gland for hours. And, uh, and I love that you brought up the DMT know, part. Right? <laughs> for, for folks who actually may not be familiar, DMT is actually a um, powerful psychedelic. It's found in ayahuasca. You can also smoke it in pure form. And so the fact that it is produced endogenously within our brain is incredibly fascinating and leads to the idea that these experiences we're having on psychedelics are not some hallucinogen, but are rather us transducing the universe in a way that we also have the ability to do through other forms by activating our pineal glands without psychedelics. And and Lexi, at the risk of potentially stealing your interview for a few minutes, can I tell you my craziest story with the pineal gland ever? Oh my God, I would welcome that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Couple months ago, I was I was actually watching Dr. Joe Dispenza's weekend long seminar at the Gaia Sphere from like late 2019. And anyway, the last two meditations that he goes through are all focused on activating the pineal gland, and it includes like hypnotism and a kaleidoscope. So it's incredibly trippy. So of course, That's I decided awesome. to take a hundred micrograms of LSD and, and watch it. <laughs> I mean, awesome! It was really one of the the most incredible experiences of my life. And so like as insane and unbelievable as all this may sound, like I've had a direct experience of activating that pineal gland. Like I felt like I had a new organ that I never was aware of and that I was having literally, I I called it an orgasm of Nirvana and it was just unbelievable. Really? You just described it in a way that is what's happening. Think about the concept of awakening Kundalini. I, I never really knew that much about it aside from having a book about it that's really, really big and all in Sanskrit and it's sitting on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. Like, Jordan, are you familiar with the whole concept and process of the Kundalini awakening? Uh, I've heard of it before, but not really. So in short, like, I'm no expert on this, but in short, the Kundalini awakening is a Vedic basically the process of the way that it's described because I, I, I don't know too much about it, but I know that it's the process of enlightenment for, I know it's based out East. So in Sanskrit etymology, but it's the energy. It's an intense experience. It's described as, and it's described as an energy rush or almost sensation that goes up your it awakens you and it's an enlightening energy and it can be really intense but once you've per se awoken kundalini you can't view life the same anymore i mean you're you have a completely new disposition the way you see life the way that you interact with life and with energy and we see this across all forms of spirituality practices across the world across millennia you see all of these 
synchronicities and these overlaps and these patterns mm-hmm. that all of these different people from different parts of the world were having different life experiences at different moments in time. However, they were all coming back to these certain fundamental concepts and notions and themes. And I always find it very interesting when they are very consistent and when specifically there's things that can't be fully proven today. And there are so many things that, of course, today, thank God that we've finally accepted meditation as an extremely effective form of healing for a plethora of different things. There's so much value and truth that is associated with all of these super deep-rooted practices and religious and spiritual traditions. The whole tradition of taking ayahuasca and what that's been for shamans and for people for more than, I mean, millennia. That it was one of the beginning healing rituals that ever exists. For these things to still exist and still be carried forward is all what builds my view of legitimacy when I hear some of these things and these congruencies and consistencies. What I think is so potent to remember is back then, people didn't have all of this stuff to distract them. They didn't have cell phones and careers with managers and all of these different obligations that that are just distracting them and chronic constant information flooding their awareness at all times like people today have. If you really think about, well, consider a mental framework, in other words, a state of awareness that wasn't polluted by all of the distractions that we have today. And this kind of comes back to the whole concept that our consciousness is not necessarily a linear thing. That's, there isn't really a way to perfectly and define proving that. But yeah. when you look back, you see how people were so much more in touch with the stars, with the impact of solar and cosmic events had on the Earth and the experience that they had. In this day and age, we look up at the stars and the average person's probably like, oh, cool, a star. But no one really thinks much of it. I think the field of astrology has gotten a, a bit skewed, if you ask me. But there is so much truth in the cosmos. And the people that crossed the world over millennia and generations, back then, people didn't have these distractions. They were much more connected with the world around them. They were much more connected with this said quantum field of existence. Honestly, it's it, it's insane. I don't even. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling you the story uh, I, about the dispensa meditation. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. I think that's so cool that uh, that you are like pursuing all of this education around the subject matter, and it's actually you're taking from it these, these crazy, profound new experiences and building this increasingly expansive way of viewing reality because for me that's like the coursework that I pursued without really thinking of it as coursework you just got to start learning totally. and educating yourself 
and go in the directions that you're interested in. And that, that oh, that sparked my interest. Oh, the multiverse theory. Hmm, wonder what that's about. Just start down these avenues because I will tell you, if you're doing it right, the avenues are going to all start connecting. You know, take <laughs> yeah. multiple different routes. And if you just keep pursuing all the questions, like in Westworld, have you seen that show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I know. That's a great show. The line, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? That is very, very profound because I think that adds so much more depth and magic to being alive. Right. Having so much of it be unknown. So much. Like, we knew everything. Then where's, what's the fun in that? We're not supposed to know everything. It is, in my opinion, a little depressing to think about people out there with little video game controls controlling mm -hmm. us around like Sims. I don't like that. That That's not my favorite theory. <laughs> out there. But honestly, I think that, I think the multiverse theory has the most traction, at least in my eyes. But I mean, that's a whole other concept too. I yeah. have so many cool things to talk let's, about. Let's dive into that. I would love to hear your perspective on the multiverse theory. It really goes back to, it goes back from me I like to think about the concept of the universe and we look up into the night sky and I'm looking up into the night sky right now and I see darkness. So we are told that is infinite. That goes forever. I remember when I was little, I, this is how my fascination over the universe and the cosmos started super little. And I would ask my dad, dad, where does the universe end? He goes, well, it doesn't end. And I said, well, is there like, what do you mean? Is it like a wall at the end? He goes, well, if there's a wall, then what's on the other side of that wall? And I said, okay, well, and I remember this. This is when I was like pretty young, honestly, like six years old. And I remember asking, well, is the universe a sphere? Like thinking if there can't be an end, then maybe it's like a, a sphere, like a ball. And he said, well, if it's a ball, then what's outside of the ball? And then I thought, what do you mean it's infinite then? That just how could something be infinite? And that was the first time that I really realized the fact that we don't, we can't conceptualize infinity. I, I shouldn't say can't because I'm sure people have different experiences, but that where I'm going with this is as you approach the concept of infinity and as you dive deeper and deeper, Things all of a sudden one day just clicked. And what clicked was the fact that understanding infinity and looking out into the night sky and just thinking, where does that go on and on and on? You know, people talk about, oh, like 200 billion light years away is this galaxy or this star. And that's a lot of miles. I mean, light years, that's, a, that's like a, a distance measurement that we don't even know how to perceive. It's just an insane number. It's like saying tr a trillion dollars for real. It's that's a lot of dollars. When I think about that, I really just, it comes back to me that it's all relative. It has to be all relative. When I think it's all relative, it, it makes so much more sense to me than thinking. Lexi, oh, what, what do you mean by it's all relative? Let me, let me say this in a different way. The universe I don't think that there's just this 
three-dimensional physical realm. And something that really sparked that thought was another conversation with my dad, actually. And for reference, he was an orthodontist, not like a theoretical astrophysicist or anything. We just both have crazy minds. He goes, okay, so if the shadow of Earth, if a 3D object is the shadow of a 2D, a two-dimensional object, that means that the fourth dimension of time is a shadow of the third dimension. And so before I go on, let that sink in. So if our shadow is the third dimension and the shadow of the fourth dimension is what then? So that means that just continue to go outwards from one dimension point Hmm. and then two dimension, length and width. Now three dimension, length, width, depth. Now fourth dimension, time. Fifth dimension. The fact that scientists and theoretical astrophysics, they have come up with, I know it's always changing, but I think now it's definitely over 11 or 12 dimensions. Yeah, I think 12 is like they think for string theory. Yeah, exactly. So considering that, then rewind to us here right now. We are three-dimensional living throughout time being a linear progression. So we experience time in a linear way. But what if you take a step forward and go into the fifth dimension? Time isn't going to be linear. And I think that a great way that is described is Interstellar. Interstellar does a great job, the movie, at visualizing this whole concept of time being continuous and everything happening at the same time. To me, when I look out in the universe and I just look straight out and I see infinity distance and everything's measured in the distance and in light years away and light years away, how does all of that change when time is no longer this construct that I have to go from point A to point B? There's string theory too, which is crazy. But I think it is the same thing as what you're saying, Lexi, but just the string theorists are putting it in like a scientific reductionist materialist view and they're not understanding the interconnectedness of all these different dimensions. Yeah, but honestly, what you just said, though, big fall in tandem, you know, because there is so much science that does back up so much of what we're talking about. So much that has to do with consciousness and awakening and being present and really experiencing life in the way that I'm grateful. And I'm sure many others are that you're making a podcast to discuss these topics. A lot of that can be written out and is currently being studied in science, in physics with quantum theory and quarks and all of this crazy stuff that you have these theoretical physicists going in and really pondering. And that's why I, I, I truly do think that theoretical physics is so interesting because oh, yeah. you literally just have these scientists that are like, damn, I wonder if there could be two of me. You want to go test it out? See if maybe there's a parallel universe, parallel reality that these little particles are behaving in a certain way. 
let's use this experiment and basically create like a nuclear fusion and some crazy nuclear event and see what happens when the particles get excited. And oh, cool. We just learned that there is the God particle. Yeah, I think physics is just the study and the science of the fabric that weaves together our reality and the moving pieces and the different factors that all come together to create where we exist and the way that they interact. And so physics is really an interesting discipline. I know we all took it when we were in high school or whatever. Personally, I must have had a terrible physics teacher because I didn't really care about physics in high school. <laughs> but I have I probably own like five books on different theoretical physics disciplines just today because of sheer <laughs> interest. There's a lot of questions and I think that that's the goal. That's kind of what makes it what makes it worthwhile. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of cool questions that you'll have for everything with regard to the universe and what we know and what we don't know. And I think a lot of it can be a self-discovery kind of thing. And you, you learn it and there's all of these, the quote, as above, so below. I love that quote because there's just all these synchronicities from all that's going on in the most macro level in galaxies and in supernovas that are eons and eons away to what's going on inside of us and in nature. And if you go all the way down, so that's the macro level. And we also don't have a defined limit as the universe is infinite. We don't know where it ends. It doesn't end. But when you go micro now, you also have the same effect. You have essentially all physical matter and is all basically, it's just energy. Everything is made up of energy. Everything, it's just oscillating particles. They're vibrating strands of energy that are surrounded by vast empty spaces. And so when you bring enough of these layers of energy together at a given frequency, it can create physical solid form, at least the way we perceive it in our reality and our existence here on earth. That's why it's so important to, to remember that everything is energy. Everything is frequency. That's including your thoughts, including your feelings and your emotions. So the more that you continue to feel a given thought, the more that it's going to affect your physical body mm -hmm. because energy first starts out in the non-physical and then it turns into the physical. Nothing that is currently physical has not started out as just energy in the non-physical state. And so when you realize that, you realize that certain thoughts are really damaging. They carry really low vibrations that are truly destructive. Other things that carry low vibrations and frequencies that are destructive, certain electromagnetic frequencies, radiation, all this 5G, that these are all just- X-rays. Crazy, yeah. Okay, 5G is honestly terrifying to me. It's just very terrifying. I encourage everyone listening to do a little self-research on that. Take what you will. There's all these forms of dangerous energy and that, like I said, includes certain thoughts, fear and hate and resentment. They all have a very, very low frequency. But then as you move up the spectrum, 
you come up to feelings like joy and compassion and love and freedom. These frequencies have a much higher frequency, which means they have a much higher, we'll post the picture on, on your thing so people can see that cool chart from Dispenza's book. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great chart to illustrate. Yeah, it's a great chart. But, but there's also a cool documentary for people that are interested. It is by Dr. Emoto. It is a documentary on water. It is the craziest thing. You're going to learn, you're going to see water in a totally different light. Hmm. But water is a magical compound. It's unlike anything else. It can change. It's in various different states. It's just a crazy, crazy element. With water, there's a really cool interaction that it has. In this documentary, it talks about how there were there was a study done where there were subjects that they placed in front of a big vase of water and they had each subject project a certain emotion on that water just in their thoughts not out loud one of them was compassion one of them was the words thank you saying this in their head another one was the words i hate you they did this in a different, a few different variations, but the results came back and they took that water and through some form of process, I believe they froze it. So the water maintained a crystalline structure mm. and under a microscope, they showed what the water looked like on a molecular structure level. The crystal formations in the water from the molecular formations were very orderly and very beautiful and symmetrical. They looked like snowflakes uh, under a microscope when they took the vases that were filled with water that had positive emotions or words projected on them, like the thank you one and the compassion one. And the I think they did like an I love you one. You get the joke. And then the ones yeah. that they did where the person projected the negative emotions on it had this, in, it was completely disorganized. It was just like completely scattered. There was no rhyme or reason, no symmetry to the formation of when they looked under the microscope for this negative emotion base. And they basically, the findings were that you can change the molecular structure of water based on the thoughts and the intentions you put on it. And it really makes you realize why why did holy water become such a thing why was it thought of to pray and to pray on water to change the state and the use and the overall representation of what that water was doing holy water is a huge component of religion dating back for millennia water is a very very crazy crazy element and of course it's absolutely necessary to our survival it's the most important which totally makes sense that it would be like super cool and interesting so lexi back to your example of as above so below we know at the subatomic structure almost everything is empty space right an electron is in in the nucleus takes up like 0.01 percent of the space of an atom or whatever it is right so this idea that everything is energy, everything is wave, that matter is an illusion, it fits quantum physics as unbelievable as it may sound. 
A hundred percent. It's quantum theory. That that is truly quantum physics. It truly is merely just a perception of how we perceive it. It's always like, oh, this rock solid table is really just made of empty space. It's definitely a change in perspective. It's a change in, it's, it's very much so a paradigm shift because you're working and you're talking about the realm that cannot be seen or felt with the five senses. Nonetheless, it still exists because it's the foundational underpinning of the fabric of our universe, the fabric of everything. It's what connects yeah. us all. It's the unified field. That's what's so intriguing about it because we have the ability to access that field and accessing that field just requires raising maybe i won't even use the word raising just matching our vibration why do people say oh my god you were on the same wavelength with this because when there's two wavelengths they actually did a, a, a cool study with these two pendulums the two pendulums that were swinging not together in a coherent way together they were swinging just on their own they put them into a room and the proximity of those pendulums, clocks, think like a grandfather mm -hmm. clock, all of a sudden, with time, started at the same rate. They didn't change rates. They started syncing up and then <laughs> ultimately ended up just moving together in unison. That's insane. Because it, it is. I mean, and that's why people say a different derivative of that is when people say you are a sum of who you surround yourself with. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret that, but that is basis. Everyone, every personality, every emotion, everything you're exposed to carries a frequency. If you're surrounded by all these people that are constantly complaining, constantly focusing on the things that are going wrong in life, constantly worried, constantly talking about other people, not saying positive things, you are exposed to all of these energies that you slowly over time become. So that's why they say, you know, surround yourself with people that are going to raise your vibe, surround yourself with things that are going to help you on your path to increasing your frequency. And like with anything regarding energy, energy can't be created or destroyed. It just changes form. So if you have negative thoughts, you don't have to worry. You just have to change them. We're capable of doing that. We don't think we are because we've so identified with our thoughts that we've forgotten that we don't have to be swept away by the waves of our thoughts. And I think this is really where meditation comes in. It's such a powerful tool because it allows you to sit back as the observer and realize that we really are in control of our death. We're really in control of where we let our thoughts take us in the direction that we let our lives take us. What we're exposed to is a profound influence on our awareness and perception of life and reality. Back to the concept of how energy can't be created or destroyed. It only changes form. That's, I believe, the law of conservation of energy. It's very fundamental. In a sense, it changed the way that I view death. It's made me a lot less afraid of death. To me, the reason being is because the person that we are, we are a mind, a body, and a soul, a spirit. And the way that I 
at a glance would define what soul means to me would be it's our unique and utterly distinct fingerprint in the total quantum matrix of all things, of all things that exist. Our spirit, there's nothing else having an experience, nothing else, no one else, no one else is experiencing life the way that we are through our eyes. Especially when you become aware of that and you start to really develop your, your self-awareness and your state of consciousness, you realize that you are this orb of energy, your personality, your spirit, everything that makes you you. When our physical bodies and minds, when they perish one day, that energy, that spirit, that fingerprint, that thumbprint of our essence, our energetic essence, where is that going? Because it can't be destroyed, so it can't die with our bodies. It must change form then. If it's going to change form, that's what's so fascinating to me. Because that just means that we're going to continue on. Totally. That people continue on. The concept of death, and I'll even take this one step further. I was like rambling on about this to my mom who was raised Catholic. I grew up with my dad who's Greek Orthodox and my mom was raised Catholic. And I was born and raised with both realms of religious understandings. As I kind of pursued my own independent thought experiments on life and, and how it all made sense to me, I put heaven and hell in energetic terms. Hmm. And that was a really cool mindset for me when I did. And I'll explain it to you now. So basically, heaven and hell, biblically speaking, are defined as, well, they're defined as places, essentially. When I was young and growing up, they were defined as places. There's even scriptures and writings and drawings. Heaven's this beautiful sky, cloudy place. And how is this, how is this, this grim place of fire that you go if you've sinned? And then heaven is the place you go if you did all the right things in life. And that if you were a really good person, you'd go to heaven. And so in my mind, I always thought of things super literally. And I'm like, all right, so once you're in heaven, what are you going to do after that? Is it a place? Because how can we just stay in a place? And it really just started to make more sense when I, when I understood that if energy can't be created or destroyed, so it just changes form. And so that means that moving forward, if you lived your life and you were a sinner, when you leave this world, if the last breath that you took before you died and before your heart stopped, if that last breath you took in the current state, who you were as a person was a very low vibrational state of someone who makes terrible decisions, who lacks empathy, who is not a good person, then you have a pretty bad frequency. You have a pretty shitty frequency. Your vibration's very off, okay? So when energy just changes form, then someone who's living in a low frequency vibration or who sinned a ton, they're just going to leave this world. Their fingerprint of their spirit that's energetic and not physical is going to continue on. And the frequency of their spirit is really low. It's a very low wave. It's a very low vibration. And maybe the whole concept of hell is because when you move forward and you carry on past your death, you're carrying on into at least your spirit and your 
frequency of your spirit is carrying on in a lower realm. The same goes for someone who has lived a really a great life, someone who's helped people, who's been compassionate, someone who has lived a, a wonderful life and done good things and made good choices. They carry forward. They have a high vibration. So what is defined as heaven? And it's actually, this is very profound when you think about it, because biblically speaking, and in all different religions, there's variations of this, to consider the idea of heaven and hell that means that you're considering the fact that there's something in us, something about us that has continued repercussions after the physical us is gone. And so that in and of itself warrants further examination of what that means. But to me, and I could be totally wrong, of course, this is all theoretical and this is all just opening up my mind and maybe something will stick with someone. But I, to me, I'm still totally, I'm always open to learning new things and changing my views on things. But it's just really interesting to consider that if you're in a low vibrational state while you're alive, then when you all of a sudden commute through that passage into a new realm after death, what's commuting is your vibrational state. It would make sense that two completely different types of people operating at different levels and, and have, having different vibrations are going to leave this world and enter the next realm in different states. And whether you call that heaven and hell, whether you call that whatever suits your fancy and your interests. But to me, I think that that's a pretty cool way to look at the eternal continuous representation of energy and how it's always existing. That also ties into past lives and past life experiences and past life regression. I've had astrology readings where in the readings, people are able to take from the stars. I mean, that's how they date a lot of these old monolithic pyramid structures and stuff. They use astral regression. And in the stars, you can basically rewind the stars in time and see where they were at, from your birthday, rewind them to previous lifetimes and, and then take into account other factors too. I've learned crazy things about, in my past life, I was someone that had a lot of really hard labor. Like I worked really mm. hard and it was physical labor and it consumed my life. I'm very geared and accustomed to putting in hard work and taking like the long way to get something done because yeah, I'm well, extremely see, thorough was, and I need to be hands-on. What was that experience like? Did you, were you able to, to visualize that past life? I've never done an actual past life I guess you can call it regression or therapy kind of thing. Akashic record reading. Although that's super cool. And I totally would do that, but I did it with an astrologer who I believe also practiced within that realm. So he was very knowledgeable about all of that. And he looked at my chart and I advise for anybody that ever looks based on getting an astrology reading because they're not cheap, but they're mad genius. They're so cool. And the thing is that similar is, to like a, a psychic reader? I guess not. It's more, more related to the star alignment. Yeah. So actually astrology is, it's an entire, it, it's very mathematical. It is very scientific. You definitely get quacks within that realm because it's dismissed and disregarded by society. 
because of what I said, how it became very commercialized. The horoscopes. And yeah, like the 12 Zodiac. No. Okay. If anything, you, when you read the horoscope, you should be reading it for your rising sign, not the sign of the month you were born. Getting an astrology reading is very insightful. And it's one of those things where you get to know yourself better. My advice, if you're going to get an astrology reading, get at least two from different people. Now in this day and age, everything is virtual over the phone. And so I've done one with some woman out in California who was good. And I've done, honestly, I've probably gotten like six different readings over time. All you give them is your, obviously your name, your birthday, the time of day that you were born and the location. Those pieces of information will allow them to put in their software system. And they, most of them, at least now, or at least they have available really, really intricate, complex software that will put, they'll put that information in and it will plot you out the second that you were born, what the sky looked like. Okay. And that is what your birth is. So your birth chart is a picture of essentially the sky. Think of it as like a circle. In that snapshot of the sky, these are celestial bodies or some form of a cosmic entity that is significantly bigger in scale than you, emitting a significant amount of energy, whether it's the moon having gravitational pulls, the moon emits energy, everything is energy, like we talked about, but so are stars, and so is the placement of certain things. At that moment in time, the placement of the sky, of the moon, of the sun, of all of the planets in our solar system, of the distant stars, but it's not as much about the distant stars. It's mainly just the moon, the sun, and all the planets. Because each of those planets and the sun and the moon carry different properties to them that paint a picture once you have a birth chart, their relationship to one another and where they're located in the chart, it tells a very, very profound story and, and a, paints a very profound picture. And I'll leave this off with the three top things that you, and you could actually go online and put in, if you know your time of birth, you could yeah. find online, type in like rising sign, rising and moon sign calculator on Google and add your birthday and your birth time. And it will ask for your location of birth. So like I'm in Chicago, Illinois, and then it will populate like little calculator thing. You're rising your sun and your moon sign. Everyone knows their sun sign. If they know anything about astrology, that's the, the, the month, give or take that they were born in. So yeah, when were you born, Jordan? December 21st. Okay. So, wait, are you a Capricorn? I think I'm a Sagittarius, but I'm on the board. Sagittarius? Oh, okay. That's, that's your sun sign. At the end of the day, your sun sign, your rising sign, and your moon sign are like the most important because that really just paints the picture of you. That's like the three okay. most important signs. Your rising sign is the way I like to describe it in layman's terms is the sign. And, and to find your rising and moon sign, you need to have that time of birth the time of day specifically so once you find that you can plug that into one of these websites if you google it and like a rising sign calculator and it will tell you it will like register it in its database 
The rising sign is the sign that you give off in your first impression to people. My rising sign is a Taurus. My sun sign is a Capricorn. I was born in January. And then my moon sign, and so your moon sign is, for instance, I'm a Leo. What that means is all of the attributes of a Leo, you probably won't see as like a third party just based on my personality because the moon is symbolic of your internal state, your internal dialogue and how you Uh, process and, and register and perceive the external world and how it influences the way you feel and your emotional disposition. And my rising sign is a Taurus. That's my first impression to people. I definitely wouldn't say that being a Capricorn, Capricorns are known to be super curious and, and that's your moon sign. You said Capricorn. Capricorn is my sun sign. So that's a sign because I was born in January. But when people get to know me, and and a Taurus is known to be a little bit more low-key, laid back, down to earth. Generally speaking, Tauruses really appreciate and like the finer things in life, which I definitely uh, would have to attest to. (laughs) But when, you know, when people get to know me, they start to see my Capricorn side. And that's so true. I feel like I'm a very, very big perfectionist. I will go to extreme lengths to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm willing to put the work in. I'm taking things very seriously. And those traits start to come out a little bit more. And then my moon sign is a Leo, which I was born under a full moon in the sign of Leo, hence moon sign. It's crazy. I was told by actually more than one astrologer. And by having your reading done by more than one astrologer, you start to see consistencies mm-hmm. in what they're telling you. The more diversified your readings become in terms of who's giving them to you, the more value you're getting. Because I will tell you, there has been some consistencies in readings that I've gotten. For instance, I've been told by like four or five different people that I was brought on earth to do something that was not only humanitarian, but that I am at heart a healer was so crazy to me. That's awesome. I heard that from so many different people. And oh my God. And then then there's the North node and the South node. And that's crazy. Basically also this comes into past lives. I came into the world with a very solid, came into the world from a very, with a very spiritual understanding of self a lot of these things that metaphysically or spiritually or esoterically that come to me, it's very easy for them to come to me because I, you know, and that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, like, sorry to cut you off, but I was going to ask you, how did you get spirituality in the first place? Honestly, I think it had to do with the universe. I honestly, like I've been poking at that topic since I was so young and I never got answers. And so I started reading about it. I did have one of my good friends in college, actually, she had done a lot in that realm, was certified in Reiki, in yoga. She kind of opened me up to some of these metaphysical practices, and, and that triggered my interest in what are some of these things. And then I, my mom and I went on some retreats together, Canyon Ranch, for, for instance. It's like a health retreat resort, and they have sessions and seminars and different, I have a numerology reading and I went to, there was one where it was like a gemologist. I I had 
a reading with stones where I, I basically chose stones I gravitated towards. And just some of these cool, these fields that to me at the time was totally new. I felt like it, it was honestly magic, especially the beginning when you start diving into this stuff. You realize, holy shit, this is insane. Is this seriously yeah. like, you know what I mean? That, that's um, for sure where I'm at right now. <laughs> it's such a cool feeling. It's honestly yeah. so, I hope everyone in their life is able to feel this because it just adds so much more color yeah. to life. It truly does. It's funny you say that. I literally do see colors as more vibrant. I love to hear that. And I am so happy you said that because I actually want to bring up this insanely awesome Alan Watts quote. This ties into the whole concept of meditation and it's a way to frame meditation and frame our relationship to our thoughts. I wrote the whole thing down. I probably have it memorized because it's so cool to me. It just really resonated. Do you want me to share yeah, it? Please do. Okay. I was probably going to share it anyway, so I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> After Stop. all that, you know what? No, no, no. We don't want to hear it. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we oh, go. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He says, if you talk all the time, you'll never hear what anyone else has to say. And therefore, all you'll have to talk about is your own conversation. The same is true for people who think all the time. That means when I use the word think, talking to yourself or sub-vocal conversation, the constant chit-chat of symbols and images and talk and words inside your skull. Now, if you do that all the time, you'll find that you have nothing to think about except for thinking. And just as you have to stop talking to hear what others have to say, you have to stop thinking to find out what life is all about. So that was the part that I was going to share. But then the second part of it actually goes into what you were just saying with colors. So I think it's super applicable. So continue. And the moment you stop thinking, you'll come into immediate contact with the unspeakable world, the most ordinary sights and sounds and smells and texture of shadows on the floor in front of you. All these things without being named saying that's a window, that's red, that's a leaf. When you don't, name things any longer, you start seeing. You create a mental construct around what something has to be, and then you rule out all the possibilities. So if you say, that is a leaf, it is the shape of a cone, and it's outlined, then that's not a leaf. Every leaf is different. Everything everything is different. Mm. If you're funneling things into a specific framework and a structure, then you're completely disregarding everything outside of that then basically he ends by saying the five senses make a man blind because if you can only see five colors you're blind if you force color into five colors you're blind the world of color is infinite how crazy is that that's amazing granted when you hear him say it in his voice it sounds so much cooler, especially because it sounds kind of crackly, like an old record. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true. Yeah. If you force color into five categories, five colors, you're blind. The same thing goes for forcing anything into any category. Once you dissolve the construct of associating something with something based on preconditioned thought, 
you start to physically and materially understand the concept of infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you do things like psychedelics and LSD and psilocybin, you're able to interact with those possibilities. You're less susceptible, or in other words, you're more vulnerable to seeing things in a different way. You're not chained to the old way of thinking that was defined by the construct when you're not on psychedelics. Psychedelics provide that opportunity scientifically to rewire your brain and build new neural pathways more esoterically in this regard. This isn't even esoteric. This is like legitimate. But these are just ways that we can literally see things differently. And even without psychedelics, Jordan, like what we just talked about, about how this all feels like magic, especially at the beginning when you're like, holy hell, this is awesome. That's when I kind of entered all this. I I had not ever done psychedelics in my life before at that point. And it hit me literally like I was tripping. Like I felt now having experienced them and had these crazy profound experiences, looking back, it was almost cool because it was like a default constant, like a primer, like a benchmark. So Mm -hmm. I was able to actually see. It wasn't that I was just experiencing this if I was on psychedelics, even though if that were the case, that would still be a legitimate form of experiencing new realities. This stuff is is real and it's crazy cool. It's astronomical, truly. And I think it just really needs to start being talked about because like you said, like I said to you, my friends, all these different factors that contribute towards getting my mind in, conditioning my mind to start thinking this way. It was like my friend towards the end who really opened me up into this space. And that was the switch that helped me jump-started me onto this path, which obviously I took the wheel from there. I navigated, I pursued this. It's like my own personal thought experiment. It's just, I hold it so near and dear because it adds so much more depth and color and value to my life. I think the more that we talk about this kind of stuff, because I may be wrong, you may be wrong, I may be right, someone else might be right. doesn't matter. All that matters is we're not assigning right and wrong. We're assigning just ideas yeah. on what's happening. Because what are you going to go to freaking Wikipedia or the CDC and look up whatever we're talking about? Probably not, because that's probably not a great place to inform yourself about all of these beautiful realities. These are things that if this is just a responsibility that we have as people, that if we want yeah. to lift our consciousness, and experience this reality as one connected realm, you just got to start thinking big and opening up your mind. And so, yeah, full circle, back to meditation. That Alan Watts quote was just absolutely perfect for me because once people realize, once they have the ability to master their thoughts, they have the ability to make absolutely drastic changes in their life. And it's not easy and you don't have to control them. But going back to what I I said earlier about being the observer, that's a really helpful device that I have with myself when I meditate is when there's thoughts that just keep trying to invade and, and they don't let up, I just try to separate myself from the thought 
as much as I can. At night, sometimes when I can't sleep, I literally think in my mind, I take whatever is bugging me and keeping me up and I put it into a mental box. And I say to it in my mind, I say to it, I'm going to set you aside and put you under the bed right now. I don't literally get up to put the invisible box under the bed. This is just (laughs) going on in my mind. And I say, I'm closing the lid and I'm setting you aside. I will be there to attend to you tomorrow. But for now, you are going to go and hit pause and go to the side or go under the bed. And by doing that and by making that visual representation of extracting my thoughts away from myself, it's literally helped me sleep at night. It's been honestly my saving grace. Being able to identify ways that being able to build this relationship with your thoughts is separate from you, not as something that you're immersed in and that you're a victim to your thoughts because we're always going to have thoughts, but thoughts are not going to always stay there. You know, everything is moving emotions. It's emotion. It's energy in motion. You have to let it pass and you have to be able to make decisions that you're looking out for yourself and your health. A conversation for maybe a different episode, because I think this would benefit people really greatly is the whole concept around the adrenals and stress mm. and chronic stress mm-hmm. and adrenal fatigue and how that's influencing people, even me. That's definitely something that, like for me, managing stress is something that's constantly on my radar. And meditation is definitely humongous there. There's great herbs that can help with that. But that's definitely something that's really important to look out for because it's just the precursor to chronic inflammation and disease. Because like I said, everything that's physical or materialized in a physical form started as an energetic form. So when your body is under chronic stress, you don't sleep as well because when your adrenal levels are high, well, I guess your cortisol, your body produces less melatonin. So you get less deep sleep. So you stop producing as much human growth hormone. And there, it's a whole ripple of effect. I'm very excited for uh, all the, we could talk forever, Jordan. We really could. could, I know. (laughs) It's going to be a 12 hour episode. Easy. Seriously. So why don't we, uh, why don't we plan to come back for a round two? This has been so much fun, Lexi. I know. I hope that I haven't bored people away. I, it's something that I'm very, uh, very conscious of working on is going on tangents, but when it comes to stuff that's so interesting, how can I not? You know, what exactly. I mean? And uh, all of <laughs> like ten other tangents you could take with each of them. So, no worries. That's yeah, and I try to full circle. I really try to full circle. I'm usually <laughs> pretty good at. Again, it's amazing that you're doing this, Jordan. I think you're going to benefit so many people. People who don't even realize they're going to be benefited. Benefited, but yeah, I'm really happy to be able to share some of my thoughts, some of my color, and and hopefully help people further open their eyes and activate their pineal gland. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I mean, in all seriousness, though, but seriously, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been amazing to be on. I'm so, I'm very honored that you, that you wanted to have me on and yeah, I look forward to doing, doing this again. Thank you, Lexi. That all means a lot to me. And I really hope that people benefit a lot from this. And even if 
spirituality is not your cup of tea, whatever, at least start to think outside the box a little bit about all kinds of different concepts, because I do think people can get to your point, very much locked in thoughts and just repeated ways of repeated patterns. Anyway, thank you so much. For for sure. And I will say that if you're listening to this right now, that shows that you're already on the right path. If your mind and your came to this podcast, then you're already on the right path. All right, Lexi. Well, thanks again. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All righty. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Lexi finished the episode talking about meditation and how learning to master her thoughts has been instrumental for her spiritual practice and self-actualization. Meditation has also been a game changer for me, and so I wanted to dive a bit deeper into my meditation practice, specifically transcendental meditation, which I started about four months ago. I first heard about TM through one of my heroes and mentors, Ray Dalio, Ray is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest hedge fund in the world. And he has been instrumental in shaping my personal approach to management, my understanding of the global economic system, and my development of critical thinking. Of all his principles for success, Ray has stated that meditation was likely the most important for him. I had inconsistently meditated with the common Headspace apps for several years before getting into spirituality, and so after I started down that path, TM kept coming up as an avenue worth exploring towards deepening my consciousness. The heads of Maharishi International University, or MIU, who run the TM program globally would explain meditation in this way. Compare your consciousness to an ocean, and your mind is a small boat sitting on top of the ocean. All of a sudden, you get huge swells of waves. And while the ocean appears incredibly active at the surface, in reality, the ocean is one mile deep and naturally silent at the depth. The surface of our ocean is our active, thinking mind. The natural tendency of the mind is to be drawn spontaneously to the state of unbounded awareness at the depths, but the constant distractions of daily life or the waves at the top prevent our minds from getting there. And so TM relies on using a mantra to settle your mind down to the depths of pure consciousness, whereas awareness or mindfulness-based meditations would be more akin to attempting to settle the waves at the top of the ocean. So TM has been an absolute game changer for my spiritual practice, uh, but the course to learn it is a meaningful investment as it goes to pay for full-time TM teachers. And so if that financial commitment is outside of your strike zone, but you're still interested in learning more, I'd recommend instead checking out the mantra-based meditations on the Chopra app, C-H-O-P-R-A. And so as transformative as TM has been for me, even more important are the teachings and legacy of its founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Maharishi was born in India in 1918 and earned a degree in physics from Allahabad University. From there, he studied ancient Vedic knowledge under Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, also known as Guru Dev. Maharishi recognized that this millennia-old Vedic knowledge explained exactly what modern physicists were looking for in a theory of everything that could provide a hypothetical framework explaining all known phenomena in the universe. So Maharishi then leveraged his understanding of both the Vedic tradition 
and modern quantum physics to develop what he called the unified field of consciousness theory. The theory itself is incredibly complicated, but I'll do my best to provide my rudimentary understanding in layman's terms. The theory argues that a singularity of consciousness, eternal and infinite in nature, existed prior to the Big Bang. That everything we perceive to be matter is actually emanations of thought, sound, and light waves, and all of these emanations are entangled as part of this singularity of consciousness. And that by connecting with this higher level of consciousness, of which TM is just one of infinite effective techniques, we can recognize the divine spark that lies enfolded within each of us. Now, I understand that these ideas are esoteric and difficult to conceptualize, but I cannot underestimate how profound the implications are once you start building upon the physics of this field consciousness theory. Many of the leaders of the modern science of consciousness movement, including Deepak Chopra, the father of integrated medicine, and Dr. Stephen Greer, the founder of the Center of the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, were students of Maharishi, as were the Beatles, who helped bring Eastern spirituality to millions of people in the West. And interestingly, George Lucas based his character Yoda off of Maharishi and his idea of the Force off of Maharishi's field consciousness theory. And if you get a chance to watch uh, any of Maharishi's speeches, you'll recognize the resemblance immediately. So Star Wars is, in effect, a perfect example of art imitating life and of reality being stranger than fiction. So anyway, although Maharishi dropped his body in 2008, his legacy is carried on by MIU and men and women like Dr. Tony Nader, an MIT and Harvard-trained neuroscientist, and Dr. John Hagelin, a Harvard and CERN-trained quantum physicist. And I want to emphasize that, as abstract as these ideas may sound, this is applied physics, not just theoretical physics. MIU and the Chopra Institute have published copious amounts of peer-reviewed research showing the positive benefits of meditation on crime reduction, improved self-actualization, and recovery from illness. And to nerd out a bit deeper, the reason group meditation is more powerful than individual meditation has to do with a universal principle of wave behavior called constructive interference. So in Dr. Hagelin's words, the radiated power and resulting societal effects emanating from a group of meditators will grow as the square of the number of meditators in the group, i.e. grow quadratically as opposed to linearly. This is because the amplitude or height of a wave is equal to the sum of all the contributing waves that occupy a common space. Yet the power of that resulting combined wave is proportional to the square of the height of that wave. This is why, for example, the volume of two loudspeakers playing monaural sound in close proximity to each other is two squared, or four times, the sound of a single loudspeaker. It is also why the intensity of laser light grows as the square of the number of photons in the beam. This is a universal principle of wave behavior known as constructive interference. Again, I know this is all very complicated and hard to conceptualize, so I encourage everyone to dive in further themselves to see if these theories resonate with them as truth. To me, trying to boil down the significance of Maharishi's theories comes down to this. Waves of conscious thought behave energetically exactly like waves of sound and like waves of light. And once we start developing technologies to harness the power of conscious thought, like we have with sound and light, the possibilities for human advancement are limitless. Music